Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Today, you're in for a real treat. My guest is not only a leader who's convinced as much as we are that leading employees with intentional care and compassion represents the future of workplace leadership. He's a CEO who has proved its inherent and natural effectiveness. Hubert Jolie is the former CEO of Best Buy, a large U.S. electronics retailer who orchestrated a spectacular turnaround of his company by changing the rules of executive management. His philosophy was to pursue a noble purpose, put people at the center of his business, create an environment where every employee could blossom and treat profit as an outcome, not the goal. Now, it's one thing for a CEO to understand that traditional leadership practices are failing and that organizational cultures must be reinvented. But Hubert is one of the few so far in corporate business who've had the courage to actually put these ideas into action. At the time he took over at Best Buy, the company's future was actually quite uncertain. But when he left his role as CEO, the firm's stock price had soared from $10 a share to nearly $100 a share. Very soon, Hubert will be publishing his new book, so appropriately called The Heart of Business. It describes a leader who, trained by McKinsey, was originally hard-charging and focused almost entirely on numbers and not people, but concurrent with his own life and spiritual journey. Hubert greatly evolved his thinking and came to fully believe that nurturing rather than squeezing people represents the far more informed path of leadership. Today, he's sharing his leadership experience with business students at Harvard University, but I'm thrilled he's here joining us all on the podcast today. And on behalf of my entire audience, a very, very warm welcome to you, Hubert Jolie. Thank you, Mark. Well, I have to tell our audience that we were having this wonderful conversation before we started recording here, and I just had to stop it because I'm just so excited to talk to you. And so I didn't want my audience to miss another second of what we were talking about. So why don't we get going here? I loved your book. Congratulations. It's about to come out now. And you mentioned Harvard Business School professor Bill George. And he said that in describing you, that throughout your career, you experienced a personal transformation where you went from being the smartest guy in the room to becoming this passionate and compassionate leader of people. And it strikes me because a lot of people can't make that transition. And so to get us started, tell us what influenced this transformation. What was the transformation? Uh, I'm going to describe it as a movement from your head to your heart. But in your words, tell us what this meant and how it impacted how you go on to lead. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for the question, because it was indeed a journey and a personal transformation from this hard-charging, very brainy McKinsey consultants, very focused on solving problems and maximizing profit, to now somebody who believes that business is about pursuing a noble purpose and putting people at the center and, and then creating an environment where human magic can be unleashed. So there were several steps. I mean, this is a transformation that took about 30 years, right? So hmm. give you some of the milestone. The first milestone was in the early 90s. I was still with McKinsey. And a client of mine told me, I believe the purpose of a corporation is not to make money and that profit is an outcome. And in business, you have three imperatives. You have a people imperative. You need to have the right people, motivated, equipped. You have a business imperative. You need to have customers who are happy. Then you have a financial imperative, of course, you need to make money, but don't get confused. It's by being excellent on the people imperative that you're going to drive excellence on the business imperative. 
in an excellence on the financial imperative. So treat profit as an outcome. And by the way, start all of the monthly business performance reviews you do with people and organization, then go to customers and business and finish with finance. So that was the first milestone. I still remember this conversation very vividly. The second milestone around the same time, I have a couple of friends who are monks and they both asked me at the same time to write with them articles in philosophy and theology journals about the philosophy and theology of work. Why do we work? What is work? We all have this image of work or in the the tradition, right, of work as being a curse, a punishment because some dude sinned in paradise. Or sometimes we see work as something we do so that we can do something else that we really enjoy. But there's an alternative view of work, which is work is part of our calling. It's part of our fulfillment. It's part of our quest for meaning. It's our opportunity to do something good in the world. And I love the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran says that work is love made visible. Work is love made visible. There was a third milestone about 15, 20 years ago. At the time, I was a senior executive. I was on top of my first mountain, if I can put it this way. I was a senior executive member of the executive team at Vivendi Universal. And as I reached in my early 40s, I'd call it my midlife crisis, I felt emptiness. I'd worked hard, been very successful, a McKinsey partner, been a senior executive, and there was nothing. And so this led me to want to step back. And, you know, in this time of lockdown, if you cannot go outside, you have to go inside and spend time with yourself. So an important milestone was my doing the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit orders, of course, and which helped me discover my calling and why I was here and what was my purpose in life. So that was very helpful. Milestone. At this, not at the same time, but a few years later, maybe 10 years later, I unfortunately went through a divorce. We'd been married, my wife and I, for many, many years. But I failed in my marriage. Neither of us were happy and eventually accepted that I had failed. And there was nobody's fault, right? We tried really hard for many years to make it work. We had two wonderful children, but we were making each other happy. And one of the things that Bill George talks about in his wonderful book, But Discovering Your True North, is crucibles, the importance of crucibles. And my realizing and accepting that I had failed I think was actually a bit unlocked. Now, it took me years to eliminate the guilt of having failed and accepting, you know, forgiving myself and realizing that I had help from others, that I had done my best, was a big, as a big milestone. And finally, my years at Best Buy was such an important milestone as well, where I realized that when I was speaking to all of our store GMs and about what we're going to do to turn around the business, what stayed with them was not how smart my ideas would have been, right? It how I made them feel. It was the energy that together we could create. And then later on, when we had saved the company, when we entered our growth phase, we went from Renew Blue to building the new blue, how I realized that what we were doing at the heart was unleashing human magic by giving the opportunity, the freedom to the 125,000 people at the company to do things that they thought were the right thing to do for our customers and for each other. So it was really a long progression. So you can use me in your before and after pictures, right, in any infomercial you want. (laughs) But that's my journey, Mark. Well, you know, the way you just punctuated that is exactly why I asked the question. Because what I'm hoping is, is that, and I know you're hoping, 
is that leaders across the world will have an accelerated version of what you went through. So they may not have the monks and they may not have the divorce and they may not even have the midlife crisis, but the evolution of an understanding that leadership isn't just mind-driven. It's not just being the brainiest person out there. It's about compassion and empathy and to use your beautiful language, doing things that elicit human magic. Yes. So it makes me want to ask you, and I'm sorry that you went through some of these very painful experiences. I also think that by going through those painful experiences, that's really how you got the wisdom that you, you ended up with. Do you have a sense, like if you could advise our audience on how they might accelerate that growth without maybe going through the more difficult parts? So my belief is that the more we know ourselves, the better off we're going to be in terms of being compassionate, empathetic, and caring, right? But we don't want everybody to have to get to middle age or late in life where they have the epiphany and go, oh, I should have been really more caring and thoughtful and appreciative of my people. So I have a sense that you might have some advice there. Yes, and I think that, you know, especially during the time of the last 12 months with this multifaceted crisis, I think many of us, all of us have made progress in that in that journey. Remember, Mark, when we used to fly a long time ago, <laughs> when you know, the, the steward and stewardess would tell us that if the oxygen mask come down, we have to put it on ourselves first before we can help others. And so as leaders, and all of us are leaders because we at minimum we lead our lives, taking care of ourselves and leading from the inside out is, I think, is the way to go. What does that mean? What's the answer to your question? Is get some help. So for me, the spiritual exercises were important. Getting a coach, starting to work in 2009, when I say to work with the fabulous, the amazing Marshall Goldsmith, the father of all executive coaches, that was a big unlock as well because he helped me I was struggling with feedback. You know, I hated these sessions where somebody tells you these are the three things you do well, three things that are your opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. So draining. He helped me discover feed forward. I can decide what I can get better at and ask for help. My favorite phrase now in the world that I use the most often is, my name is Hubert and I need help. <laughs> and, you know, I'm struggling with it. I can be vulnerable. And it's a sign of strength today to be able to say, I need help. I'm struggling. Can somebody help me? And so getting help from a coach, from a partner, spending time with daily routines like, um, I don't care whether it's exercising, meditating, praying, reflecting, taking a walk. You know, you get to choose, right? And if you can do it every day, that's wonderful. If you can't, at least try to do your best. The best reflection is at the end of the day, trying to reflect on what happened during the day. In the exercises, it's the uh, daily examen prior, right? Reviewing, did I do my best today? How did I do? And then trying to see, today is gone. What goals can I set for myself for tomorrow? So it's this work on ourselves that I think is indispensable. And in this world of crisis and anxiety and, and pressure and burnout, biggest advice that all of us can give to ourselves is to take care of yourself. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first and ask for help. That's really great advice. Thank you. And I really do believe that your recommendation that everyone get a coach, 
is such great advice. I mean, you obviously had <laughs> an extraordinary one. Marshall's been on the show. He's a friend and actually literally a neighbor. And as I mentioned before we even got on, that Marshall's name comes up in, you know, half the conversations I've had. He's coached or had some influence over these people. And my guess, I just think that your advice for anyone who can't get Marshall Goldsmith, there are plenty of really great coaches out there. But you also hint at your own spiritual influences. You don't hint at them. You actually make it very clear in your book. And so put you on the spot here. I think, let's face it, work is a spiritual experience, right? If you're fully aligned to your purpose, work is a spiritual experience. And it's also whatever the antithesis of spiritual is when it's not, you know, when work is really awful, when you're really not aligned to it. And is there like one book that you've read in your life? I know that's sort of reductionist, but any one spiritual text that might work for people all over the world? So that you think might open people's minds to the connection of one's spirit and one's work? I'll mention three books, so I'll cheat a little bit. Oh, that's great. The one that I know you is dear to your heart is Victor Frankl's Men's Search for Meaning. Mm-hmm. And this uh, psychiatrist who was in Nazi camp and survived, as he brought to himself positive images of what he could do in the world after the war. And so the search for meaning is such a powerful element of our lives. So highly recommended. The second one is from the wonderful gentleman who wrote the uh, foreword for my book uh, that you were quoting, Bill George, who is the former CEO of Medtronic and the uh, professor at Harvard Business School with me now. He's written these best-selling books you know, called Discover Your True North. It's about authentic leadership. And then the third one, which may be out of the three, you know, the best, and I'll tell you in a second why I say this, is a book called Aligned, Mm -hmm. Connecting Your True Self, Connecting Your True Self with the Leader You're Meant to Be by Hortense Le Gentil. So it's called Aligned. And it's a very simple book, but full of very practical tools and examples on discovering who you are, how you want to be remembered and giving you tools to become the person you are meant to be. The reason why I'm saying this is one of the most highly rated leadership book on Amazon is because it's true. The reason why I'm saying it's one of the best books ever is because it's written by my beautiful wife, Hortense Legendre. (laughs) And of course, I'm completely objective. Of course. Okay? (laughs) But that's wonderful. And, you know, I, I did put you on the spot. So thank you for those. And I am going to look at your wife's book when we're done here. So thank you for those introductions. And I think you picked really three great, the first two especially, since I'm very, very familiar with both of them. Wonderful and great, great starts. So thank you. I want to ask you the big picture in my mind is, you know, I was reading your book and because I, and along with our audience, are marinating in this idea that traditional leadership practices are not working, they're harming people, and we are really slow to really recover, to really pivot. So in the big picture, there's two audiences that need to be persuaded that, you know, what we're talking about here really needs to be adapted and adopted. And so CEOs, your peers, former peers, and investors, you know, shareholders and hedge funds and any market movers, what's it going to take for them to be persuaded that investing in people, and I'm not just talking about perks. In fact, I'm really not. I'm talking about investing in people and their growth and their development and well-being is wise for them. So where are we on the spectrum and what's it going to take for us to get to the promised land? 
I would say, as with these two CEOs, Mark, the vast, vast, vast majority of CEOs get it. You cannot be a CEO today if you don't get it. So they they understand that leading from a place of purpose and, and with humanity is the right thing to do. And we saw so many great examples during the COVID crisis. For example, my successor at Best Buy, the wonderful Corey Barry, she decided to close the stores in March of last year because she didn't feel that it was safe for the employees and the customers. And she only reopened when she felt it was safe. And did she look at quarterly earnings that quarter? Not as a matter of priority. She looked to do the right thing. Similarly, following the killing of George Floyd, I think so many leaders realized we need to end this systemic racism. It's part of our duty. It makes business sense. It makes moral sense. So at the conviction level, Mark, I think that very high ratings. The challenge for all of us as leaders, self-included, is how? How do you actually do this? And that's why I've written this book, is that I feel that over the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years, I have learned so much in that I wanted to add my voice and my energy to this necessary foundation of business around purpose and leadership. And it's really a guide on the how to do this. As it relates to the shareholders, I would say almost the same. Now, shareholders are diverse. There's always the activists in the shorts who want to make a quick buck. But I would say that the larger shareholders, certainly in this country, you know, the Black Rocks with Larry Fink, the State Streets, the Straits, mm-hmm. the, the Vanguards, the Fidelities, you know, they know that if a business doesn't have a long-term strategy, if a business doesn't have a purpose, if a business doesn't treat people well, it's not going to work out. And one of the most impressive business success stories of the last 20 years, it's Amazon. Has Amazon ever focused on short-term performance? They have not. They focus on doing great things. And so to me, and I give credit to, in particular, Larry Fink for writing to all of the public company CEOs in the last few years, encouraging them to talk about purpose and how they were leading and doing good in the world. And so for me, shareholders are not a good excuse for being a bad manager. You know, you can be a bad manager, but don't blame the shareholders. Thank you. You know, it's up to you to decide how you're going to lead. And that doesn't mean this purpose thing doesn't mean you're not going to perform for shareholders. Shareholders are a very important stakeholder. They're in charge of our retirement, retirement of our parents and so forth. So we want them to do well. They're very important. I always care deeply about our shareholder, but I was not a slave to them and I was not using them as an excuse. And the shareholders know in the last letters from Larry Fink was if the planet is on fire, you know, we're not going to have businesses. So you guys need to figure out how to address climate change. So that's how I see it. I think that we had a pivotal time where there's conviction that what's the definition of madness, Mark, right? It's doing the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. Mm-hmm. The pillars of our system, that was the shareholder primacy with Milton Friedman, the top-down leadership approaches with Bob McNamara and being smart and so forth. This is what has led us to the multifaceted crisis that we're facing today. And so we simply have to recognize that continuing to do the same thing is not going to create a good outcome. And we have to change this, this great level of conviction Now, all of us are on this journey. How do we do this? How do we learn to get better at doing this more consistently? And that's an exciting journey. It's also an imperative because if we 
if we don't move in that direction, bad things are going to happen. Do you think the Business Roundtable has made any meaningful progress since they made that commitment a little over, I don't know, it's probably been over a year, a year and a half ago? Yeah, it was in August of 2019, and, and all of us signed this. Yes, I would absolutely say this. I know the CEOs of the largest companies in America. I don't know each individual soul, but I know quite a few of them, and I'm inspired by so many great leaders. I'm on the board of J&J, Alex Gorski, who was the chair of the Governance Committee is the chair of the Governance Committee of the Business Roundtable, who crafted that statement. is a great human being, great leader. Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, was the chair of the Business Council, which is like the sister organization. He's a wonderful leader. He talks about modeling, coaching, and caring. So here you go. John Donahoe is the previous chair of the Business Council. They're also a wonderful human being. So there's great examples now, all of us, at the end of the day, still, Mark, are human beings. So is anybody perfect? No. You know, you have the messiness of humanity. But I think that uh, the direction is clear, and it's all about doing it. And we all know that the doing it part is the hard part. Well, I mean, that's encouraging beyond belief. And, you know, it's rare that we get to talk to somebody who has those kind of optics into the business roundtable. I did read probably six months ago that there had been a little movement, but you've given really great insight into the fact that the people themselves are the right people. And that's really exciting. You also mentioned COVID and this whole experience and, you know, what we've all endured this past year. I'm doing some work for an organization and I was speaking to some employees and their common denominator perception was honestly was that their organization's leadership completely underestimated the toll that it took on them and the experience that they had to endure. And just moving to working from home wasn't as simple as turning on a switch and putting on your sweatpants. It was traumatic in many ways. And the people adapted. And I think not all organizations and not even all leaders fully understood the impact was kind of my takeaway in talking to over three dozen people in the company. And it was startling to me that are we really not fully accepted that this was a real toll on human beings and not just, you know, on the organization and not just on profits and not just on the future of the organization. And then it gets into, in your book, we talk about engagement. And it made me wonder, like, where is engagement? You know, I'm really curious as to whether people had plenty of time to reflect over how they've been treated in their organizations and whether or not their managers were concerned about the experience that they were having at home and so forth. And whether by the time this is all said and done, ideally 2021, where people had the vaccination and we opened up businesses, are we going to have a mass exodus? Are people going to say, this is the time in my life where I've got to go make a change? Or do you think organizations stepped up? Do you think most people are saying, hey, my company really got me. My manager really was thoughtful and personalized their treatment. So I know this is a very big and broad question, but what's your take? I think that before COVID and still true today, we have another epidemic, which is the epidemic of disengagement at work. It's a tragedy of wasted human energy and passion. During COVID, you really have to be blind to not see the human beings. So for me, some companies see their employees as a resource, an input into a process. 
if you see the world like this, you know, you're not in good shape and you're not going to have engagements. Other leaders see people as the source, right, as the heart of business and it's what gives it meaning. When you have work from home, all of a sudden, we see our employees as full and whole human beings. We see them in their home. We see their kids, their spouse, their cats, their dogs. We see their struggles with bandwidth. We see their struggles with their kids learning from home, as uh, you know, as the case may be. And we see the anxiety, the realization about the importance of mental health. In any human organization, at any point in time, there's probably 20% of the population that suffers from some form of mental health issues. With the anxiety of COVID, of course, it's gone up. So as a leader, if you don't see that, you're completely blind. And I think the magic of leadership, you know, it happens when, as a leader, you can help connect what drives, who is this person as a human being? What drives them? What's the meaning of their life? And help make the connection between what drives them and the purpose of the company. And if you can build genuine, authentic human connections and relationships. There's other ingredients, but I would start with these these two. And during this time of COVID, you know, this was the invitation to do it and get to know people, get to appreciate them. And if you're able to make that transition from resource to source for human beings and employees, you're going to create a huge difference. I'm going to tell you a story because that's how we learn, Mark, right? Mm-hmm. One day I ran into one of our employees in one of our stores, a young man, and he told me how his life has changed the day a manager recognized them and took an interest in it in helping grow at the company. And my my compatriot, I'm French originally, René Descartes of the Cartesian philosophy, you know, said, I think, therefore I am. I think he's wrong. It's I am seen, therefore I am. I am seen, therefore I am. And if we can make every one of our employees feel that they exist and that they matter, it makes a huge difference. Another example is we had a general manager of one of our stores in Boston. He would ask every one of the associates in the store, about 100 of them, what is your dream? At Best Buy or outside of Best Buy, what is your dream? Okay, write it down in the break room. My job as the general manager is to help you achieve your dream. That changes everything. And that's how you get, you know, magic. So third story, when I joined the company in 2012, let's agree that Everybody thought Best Buy was going to die and it was essentially self-inflicted and the quality of service in our stores had become quite mediocre, right? And part of the turnaround and resurgence has been to change the employee engagement. And so I saw that. I saw we were making good progress when I think it was in 2018. So in one of our stores, there's a woman who comes to the store with her child. Her child had gotten for the holidays as a gift a dinosaur toy. Unfortunately, the dinosaur toy had suffered and the head was not, you know, fully connected to the body anymore, right? (laughs) So the dinosaur was really sick. And the boy comes to the store with her mother with a view, you know, to see how we could cure the dinosaur. Now, in many places, including Best Buy a few years ago, probably, you know, somebody would have directed the mother and the child to the toy aisle with the hope that maybe they can find a new dinosaur toy that is still in stock. This is not what happened here. There's two associates who saw what was going on, took the dinosaur, the sick dinosaur, went behind the counter and started performing a surgical procedure on the dinosaur. And for those of us who are watching a good doctor on Amazon, 
explain step by step, you know, what they were doing to the dinosaur. And of course, at the last minute, replaced the sick dinosaur with a new dinosaur, but gave back to the child a cured dinosaur. Okay. And you can imagine, of course, visualize for a moment the joy of the little boy and the joy of the mother. Now, here's a question mark or a question comma mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you think, Mark, that there was a standard operating procedure at Best Buy? Explain to the associates how to deal with sick dinosaur. Was there a memo from me as the CEO of the company to every employee? This is how you'll deal with sick dinosaurs. Of course not. These two associates found it in their hearts to create that joy with this child and his mother. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, my God, this makes no sense, right? This is completely irrational. And at the same time, our revenue growth was accelerating. We were getting results that were completely irrational, not logical. You couldn't explain it with logic. And the driver was how we had been able to unleash this human magic create this extraordinary engagement that was coming from within. And so I think that's what, as leaders, this is our opportunity, not to come up with the smartest possible strategy, although you need to have a strategy, but create an environment where every employee, every employee feel they belong, they exist, they are seen, and they can be the best version of themselves. What did you do to inspire that? So there's a part of me that thinks some people are just that way. They're just filled with love and just want to help saw the child and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make this kid's day. But I'm sensing from you that this was more organizational than it was individual, right? It wasn't just this rare one employee out of thousands That's that right. stood yeah. out, right? Yeah. So for our audience, what were some of the things that you did to transform the culture? How did you get people feeling safe, for example, to spend the yeah. time doing that instead of going, hey, there's another replacement dinosaur on aisle 12, you know, why don't you go over there and pick it up at $75, you know, instead yeah. of, you know, right? So I mean, that's the way we've all experienced it in some time or our lives, but this was transcendent. And I'm wondering if you can pinpoint some of the things yeah. that you and your leaders did to inspire that. So I'll take a few moments and a few points in our journey. And it all starts from within, right, as we've talked about. And, and I do believe that inside the heart of every individual, there is a desire to do good in the world. Sometimes it's hidden because people have had difficult lives, but it's always there. So it started, in a sense, at the top. I'm a bit of a Maoist, uh, I believe, fish rot from the head, right? So mm -hmm. <laughs> the most important decision we make as leaders is who we put in positions of, of leadership. And when I worked on building the right top management team at Best Buy, you know, I was also there on a journey. Initially in my professional life, I would spend a lot of time making sure I was emphasizing expertise and experience. I wanted to have the best e-commerce person, or the best supply chain person. But over time, I spent more and more time looking at who is the individual that I'm recruiting? Who is he or she as a leader? And I will always remember when I was interviewing for the CEO job at Carlson Company, so before the Best Buy job, Madeline Carlson Nelson, the daughter of the founder, and she was interviewing me to be our replacement. One of the questions he asked me is, Hubert, tell me about your soul. Tell me about your soul. Who asked this question? Mm -hmm. And yet, it's such a wonderful question. So the questions I ask today when I recruit or promote is, what drives you? How do you want to be remembered as a human being? So putting a lot of emphasis on that. So that was one element. Another element 
So with my executive team, every quarter we would get together to review our progress, work on our strategy and our plans. And one time, I think in 2016, during one of these dinners, I asked everybody to uh, come with a picture of themselves when they were a child, maybe four or five years old. And then during dinner, we shared with each other our life story and how we define the meaning of our life. And this led us to get to know each other at a much deeper level and to realize that for the most part, probably 80% of us really were there to do something good in the world. And that encouraged us to better align who we were as human beings with the strategy of the company and the kind of environment we wanted to create. A third element was when we would gather all of our store general managers for a holiday. Holiday is a big deal. This is our Super Bowl, right? For Best Buy, Mm -hmm. half of our annual profit is in the fourth quarter, right? Where we would spend a lot of time with the store GMs and every uh, every one of our leaders on discussing what drives you. Why are you here? What's the human connection? So as a way to really convey the message. And then the fourth element, because this was a series of things, is a moment in time. So we had been working on our strategy once we had saved the company, what do we want it to look like when we grow up? Our company's purpose. We said we're not a retailer. We're not here to sell consumer electronics. We're here to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs. So we're really in the happiness business. So we had created all of this purpose, the strategies that would go with it. But we were struggling because most people at the company were struggling to write themselves into that story. Imagine, Mark, I go to a Best Buy store and I tell the blue shirts, our purpose now is to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs. Chances are they would say, you're saying what? What do you want me to do when I take my shift at 10 o'clock? You know, (laughs) it's too abstract. So one day we closed the stores down for a few hours for a company-wide training. And of course, I attended that training in one of our stores here in New York City. And there was no glossy PowerPoint presentation, no video from the marketing team. We spent time together focused on two questions in small groups. So the first question is share with each other your life story. And I was paired with a young woman. She had been in an abusive relationship with an ex-boyfriend. She had been homeless. And Best Buy was her home, was her family. All of a sudden, I see this young woman not as an employee, but as a human being. Second question we spent time on was, imagine in your life an inspiring friend, right? Hopefully, all of us, most of us have an inspiring friend. I know my, for me, it's my older brother, Philip. He's a wonderful guy. Just love him. And so describe to each other what this inspiring friend does for you. And then after we had done that, we said, okay, it's very simple. What we want to do is treat each other as human beings And we want to be to each other and to our customers, and you could expand this to vendors and community and so forth, inspiring friends. So when a customer walks into the store, you don't see them as a walking wallet. You see them as a human being. You want to try to understand who they are, what's going on in their life, and you want to do your best to make them happy. And to make it concrete, we had worked on you know, Best Buy, we sell stuff, right? So we want our salespeople to be trained. So we had worked on very, very good questions that they should ask the customers if they were trying to sell a TV or a computer and so forth. They were very, very good. But the employees hated that because it was too formulaic, too mechanical. So we told them, forget about the question, or don't forget, but don't you don't need to use the question. Be yourself, 
and connect at a very human level with the customers and do your best to, you know, make a difference in their lives. So these were some of the steps. But as you can feel, Mark, it's a complete shift in mindset in terms of the role of the leader from it's all about creating the right strategy and the right plan and communicating it and putting incentives in place, hoping that everybody will comply. And it's moving to creating an environment where human magic can be unleashed. It's a sea change from a leadership standpoint. Well, it's a parting of the seas, if you will, from when a CEO does it, right? And so I'm certain people listening to this are like, they close their stores for two hours and they ask people to tell everyone about their life story, right? And then we want you to be human. And I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be at least one person listening to this saying, that's nuts. You know, why don't you talk about product knowledge? And why don't you talk about building trust and rapport and have closing skills and, you know, hitting your numbers? And that's kind of how we've run those businesses. And, you know, and something else that you've just said, Uber, that I just absolutely want to ring the bell around is this idea that the most important decision is who you put in leadership roles. Yes, it's so essential, right? It just starts there, the impact. And so did you have a way of passing this down to the organization so that it wasn't just, you know, you and the people that reported to you, so the people that you influence and the people that you actually directly hired, but then going down to the organization and to the general managers and the store managers particularly, how did you make it so that that cultural aspect and your profound understanding of that it's all about who's in that role, how did you make sure that that became pervasive throughout the entire organization all the way down to the stores. Yeah, Mark, and I, I want to come back to what you said just prior to this in terms of, you know, the business side of things. So of course, at Best Buy, we're focused on business and we know how to run the business. And the approach I'm describing with all of this focus on purpose and humanity is a complement to that. And it works. The luck I have is that the success of Best Buy proves that this approach works. The share price went from a low, I want to say it, from a low of $11 in the fall of 2012 to now it's between 110 and 120 So this thing works. And the counterintuition is that if you focus too much on the results, like when you're coaching a sales associate, if you're focusing too much on the numbers, you'll focus on the wrong thing. You have to focus on the behaviors and help them acquire the skills. So that's a big lesson. When you're too focused on the outcome and winning you're missing, there's a great movie called When the Game Stand Tall, which is about the Spartan high school football team in California that had a 151-game winning streak. And the coach told them it's never about the streak. It's about giving our best efforts and being the best we can be and supporting each other. Now, to your question of leadership, so several things. One is, you know, again, fish rot from the head. So if you fix the head, it radiates because people get the message, oh, this is the kind of leader we are promoting now. Not the jerk, but somebody who is good and is also a good person. Everybody pays attention to this. So you have a huge leverage point. And then, of course, these good leaders who are effective and good people also will do the same. So you have a cascading effect. The other thing is there's nothing wrong with being explicit. So at Best Buy, eventually explicitly laid out uh, leadership expectations. 
And in, we talk about that in the book. It's the five Bs of purposeful leadership. That you have to be a purposeful leader who's clear about their own purpose, be clear about the purpose of people around you and how it connects with the purpose of the company. You have to be clear about your role, which, as we've discussed, it's not to be the smartest person in the room. It's to create an environment in which others can be successful. It's about being clear about who you serve. I told the officers at Best Buy, if you believe you're here to serve yourself or your boss or me as the CEO of the company, said, I don't have a problem with that. It's okay. The only thing is you cannot work here. Right? <laughs> you can be promoted to customer. right? And being a customer of Best Buy now is a wonderful thing. So we'll treat you extremely well. You just can't work here. On the other hand, if you're here to serve the frontliners, people doing the work and creating the right environment for them, then we're good. It's about being values-driven, you know, and walking the talk. And it's about being an authentic, vulnerable, very human leader. These are the expectations. If you don't like the expectations, right, if you don't agree with them, it's okay. We don't have a problem with that. You can go work somewhere else. And so you have to be as clear as possible around this and then walk the talk. You know, there's a big question in the organization. How long do you tolerate somebody who's a jerk? Pardon my French. <laughs> People watch it. If you tolerate a jerk for a long time, you're sending a signal that it's okay to be a jerk. So that's some of the ways you actually have this leadership approach radiate throughout the organization. When you created your five Bs that you've just gone through, did you find that you had the people? So in other words, the people, the team, let's just say of managers, were they able to quickly evolve and adapt to the new expectations? Or did you find that you needed to put new people into positions? What was the balance? Yeah, so I actually articulated these principles relatively late in the process. And so my approach <laughs> on the question of how do you change behaviors? Well, you change behaviors by changing behavior. So I used to get paid a lot, Mark, to say these things, right? You know, <laughs> So if you say that you're going to want to focus on the customers or you want to have good leaders, you just do it. So Initially, during the turnaround in the early stages, my approach to change management was actually to change management, to make sure we had the right team. And gradually, the leadership group at the company was really made of wonderful, wonderful leaders and human beings. So when I articulated the principles, people were not shocked. They said, yeah, no, that's who we want to be. And you're never 100% there, but those who were not there either voted themselves out of the island or were voted outside of the island. So... It's always a journey. It's a progression how you do this. I want to go back to something else that you said that I just want to punctuate for our audience. And it's something that comes up for me personally constantly, which is when you were talking about closing your stores for a couple of hours and really getting to the hearts of people. And the question then becomes, is that a good use of our time? Is that a good use of the business's time? Is this is how you create an optimal performing organization? And, you know, you made this point, and I just want to put a framework around it. We conflate that by caring about people this way, that it's somehow going to undermine performance, right? And the minute you start talking about, like, what's in your soul, you associate Kumbaya and, you know, yeah. Martin Lindstrom said puppies, muffins, and cupcakes, you know, that we, we just go delusional. And it's really the the balance between the heart and the mind that we're talking about. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's the addition. Rather than the balance, it's the addition. Of course, 
I wanted our merchants, our supply chain people to know what they were doing. And frankly, at Best Buy, we have some of the best merchants in the world, some of the best you know, marketing people, supply chain people. They're really good at what they do. And it's an end. It's not an or. And you want people who are there to fulfill a mission and whereby you can harness this human genius that exists within the company in support of a mission. So one of the things I've learned, Mark, over the years is that 98% of the questions that I ask as either or, like should we focus on the short term or the long term, performance or behaviors, customers or shareholders, better answered as ends. And my view of leadership today is that you have to embrace all of the stakeholders in pursuit of that purpose, that noble purpose, and that the way you're going to succeed is by having great people who are highly engaged, doing great things for customers, partnering with vendors in a win-win fashion, making sure the community is thriving, and creating great results. And you have to force yourself to refuse zero-sum games and embrace the power of ends and understand that it's by excelling on all of these dimensions at the same time that you're going to get to crazy good outcomes. And so I'm not one who believes that there's a trade-off. Au contraire, it's the way to get to irrationally good performance. The, the way you get to irrationally good performance is by unleashing this talent and heart. And it's all of the body parts, right? I think one of the lessons for me during these last few months is uh, we need to lead with all of our body parts, the head, mm-hmm. the heart, the soul, the guts, the ears, the eyes. <laughs> really well said. Yeah, I uh, amen, brother. <laughs> let's go. Let's go a little bit deeper into your culture here. Something else that you said that I'd love your perspective on because it's something you deeply believe in, which is making your organization like a family. So there's an argument that hey, work is transactional. Come in and do your work. Go home, and that's your real family. But you're trying to make organization where people really feel connected to each other on a more deep or level. And how did you do that? Why did you do it? And what was the outcome? And would you recommend it to others? Yeah, it stems from one singular idea, which is a company is a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal. You can see a company as a money-making machine, You can see it with its equipment, its plans, its uh, physical assets, or you can see it as a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal. If you see it like that, then what you want to see is the whole person in your employees, in your colleagues, and you want to create an environment where everybody feels that they can be themselves, the full version of themselves and do extraordinary things like our two associates with the cure the dinosaur. And so it can feel fuzzy, it can feel soft, but that's, at the end of the day, what can unleash human magic. And so I do believe in this. Did you do anything in terms of recognition, like employee recognition, team recognition, recognition of groups, you know, just the cultural awards that you may have had to reinforce that? Yeah, and interestingly enough, we have incentives at Best Buy. So first, I don't believe that incentives drive performance, but you can use them to reward. When wealth is created, then you can share the wealth. And we made sure that everybody was aligned, meaning everybody was pursuing the same goal, and so we could distribute. So everybody was going to win together or lose together. 
And then recognition is about celebrating, you know, wonderful stories. So we became great at identifying stories and sharing stories to make it come to life and celebrate successes. So absolutely, celebration is a great tool. Sharing stories. I'll ring the bell on that. That is a very, very powerful way to imbue culture, recognize culture and sustain culture. I also want to ask you about the way you were compensating your salespeople. So for our audience, these are Best Buy stores, they're electronics and other technology within rather large stores. And the employees there all wear blue shirts so that you can identify who's the, the salesperson able to help you. And like most traditional retailers, The employees were paid a salary and they were paid in sales incentives. And they were also paid in something called spiffs, which is if you have a product that isn't moving or is nearing the end of its, you know, a new model's coming out and you want to get those off the off the shelves, then you give the employees extra money, 50 bucks if you can sell this TV. And this is a way of them steering the customer to those products, which is not necessarily always that authentic. And you kind of eliminated a lot of that. And I'm wondering You don't believe incentives really drive it, but that is a traditional way of running a retailer. So what happened after that? And what was the big takeaway in terms of how you compensated people? Yeah, the founder of the company actually eliminated the spiffs in the 90s. But yes, we, for the frontline employees, these are people making now starting salaries, $15 per hour, Believing that a bonus is going to drive their behavior. I mean, these are individual. It's really hard to live on that amount of money. So we incorporated a potential bonus into their base to give them more safety, more security. And we focused on, you know, this idea of unleashing human magic by appealing to the intrinsic, intrinsic motivators, which was how to connect what drove them as individuals with the purpose of the company and give them the opportunity to grow at the company. So I think that's one of the great misconceptions is that incentives drive behaviors that couldn't be further from the truth. If you think about each of us, when we get up in the morning, are we going to organize our day because we know it's going to influence our bonus by 5% here if we do this versus 3% here if we do that? Of course not. The motivation is coming from within and bonuses or variable pays more rewards than a driver. Did people end up making an equivalent amount of money when you took those incentives away? In other words, did you reward them with a quarterly bonus based on the store's performance? Or What we did, Mark, was we incorporated the bonus into their base pay. So we made it a fixed amount. So they didn't lose. Oh. In fact, we've been increasing the compensation you know, of our employees over the last uh, eight years gradually. And now the starting pay is $15, which was very different. I think eight years ago, it was like $10. So we've really made a difference there. So you bear, we're going to take a brief departure from our conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round. So to help us learn a little bit more about you personally, I'm going to ask you several questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? Absolutely. Let's go for it, Mark. Okay, great. All right. The one thing this past year has taught you. Oh, it's the importance of leading from a place of purpose and with humanity, right? We saw the our humanity, the humanity of people around us, and that was the place where to start, not quarterly earnings. Something you're really looking forward to doing once this pandemic is fully behind us. Ah, 
hugging my three beautiful and very young uh, granddaughters. Mm. They're between the ages of uh, two and a half years and six months. So I just want to hug them. Absolutely. How wonderful. The trait you most admire in other people. Oh, it's the, I think it's the ability to lead with all of their body parts, meaning not just the heads, but also the heart, the soul, the guts. We're whole human beings, right? So when I see somebody who's able to integrate all of their dimensions and become the fullest, most beautiful version of themselves, I love that. That's fantastic. Your synonym for the word heart. Love. A guilty pleasure. Oh, (laughs) doing nothing. That's awesome. That's great. A singer or band you listen to more than any other. Oh, so my musical taste is very eclectic, so I'm going to give you two answers. One is Glenn Gould in the Goldberg Variations, which is so beautiful, but also Eminem, you know, with a song like Stan, because that's the first name of my uh, firstborn. That's fantastic. That's pretty wide and diverse, so great. Yeah. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Oh, it's the seduction of power, fame, glory, or money. The most humane and effective leader you know of from any era, and this can be business, government, spiritual. Oh, Gandhi, you know, hands down. One important way you chose to raise your children differently from how you were raised. Uh, More communication. A spiritual place you love most. Uh, Being next to my beautiful wife. A lesson you wished you'd learned earlier in life. Work is love made visible. And of course, here I quote Khalil Gibran. Work is love made visible. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Oh, ingenuity. We have so many problems. Ingenuity. And the skill improvement you are personally working on right now. Of course, it's teaching because I'm a professor at HBS. And that's what I'm working on, becoming the best possible teacher I can be. That's fantastic. Well, we wish you great success with that. The common denominator of the 67, 8 guests that I've had on is we've had more Harvard Business School professors than from any other locale, (laughs) universities, businesses, etc. So there's a high form of congratulations inherent in that remark. You're in great company and you're deservedly part of that company. So thank you. It's an amazing group and privileged to be part of that bench. Well, these are really thoughtful questions and I want to get back and ask you one more before you go, but thank you so very much for going through this with me. Okay. Before you go, I want to turn the stage over to you and just ask if, is there anything in your new book, The Heart of Business, that we haven't yet discussed, that I didn't surface effectively, that you believe would be a real help to our audience to know? Any you know final insights you'd love everyone thinking about when our podcast is over? Yeah, Mark, I think it's this idea that we're at a critical time where we need to effectuate this refoundation of business around purpose and humanity and that this is vast leadership implications, how each of us leads you know, from a place of purpose and with humanity and that it starts with each of us. Each of us get to decide how we're going to lead, how we're going to live our life and how we're going to be remembered. And if we lead from a place of purpose and humanity, I think we have a good chance of making progress and solving a lot of the multifaceted crises the world is facing today. So it's an exciting time. Do you think that COVID is the reason? I think COVID and the killing of George Floyd were great accelerators because you would need to be blind today to believe that doing the same thing that we've been doing for the last 40 years is going to get to a great outcome. 
So the need for change now is crystal clear for everybody. And it's more a matter of how do we change? What's our journey? And the book, The Heart of Business, has been really written as a guide for every one of us who are eager to abandon the old ways and make progress in leading from a place of purpose and humanity. Well, you must know that you have an audience that very much embraces your philosophy. Maybe the best possible audience, because we've all embraced this and we're looking for better ways of doing it and enhancing our own knowledge. And your new book is certainly going to help us all. And so on behalf of my audience, Hubert, thank you so very much. This has been a profound pleasure for me. It's a joy for me, to be honest with you. It's been a joyful hour and then some in our earlier part of the conversation. So thank you so very much. I don't think you need a whole lot of luck. You've found that in your entire life and career, but I'm going to send you off with some of that anyway. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a delight to have this dialogue with you, and I wish everyone on the call here on the podcast a wonderful time and best wishes to all of us to lead, continue to lead from a place of purpose and humanity. You better have a wonderful week and best and best success with your book. I know it's going to be great. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that so much. Thank you. Au revoir. Bye-bye. Bye. As we close, I want to thank you all for introducing the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I think you know that our audience now reaches 153 countries around the world, and I'm certain that it's your word of mouth promotion that has propelled our fantastic growth. And I said it many times before, we will keep on producing this podcast as long as we're certain you want it. And growth of our audience is pretty much the only barometer that we're using. As always, I want to thank my great team for helping me make this happen. My team includes Randy Yant, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Gary Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you so very much for listening.